Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 54, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're talking our favorite time of year, fall, and fall whitetail habitat tips with Jeff Sturgis. So stay tuned. All right, we are live. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today we are wrapping up the Habitat mini-series that we've been doing with Jeff Sturgis. Today we're covering the fall time of year, uh, which is, of course, our favorite time of year. Um, you know, at this point, you know, when you get to the fall, you should pretty much, at the, you know, at this juncture, have all of your Habitat updates kind of wrapped up and, you know, be geared up and ready to kind of, uh, I guess, put on the full assault onto your deer hunting season um you know it's it's, at this point you don't want to really be doing a whole lot of work you don't want to be you know messing up with your any patterns that your deer have that are that are working and 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 so forth um i think what what we jeff kind of focuses on in the other sections that kind of plays into the fall and he'll talk a little bit more about it as it pertains to fall is you know the goal for fall habitat really is to hold deer during the time that you want to hunt them you know if they're not on your property they're really really hard to hunt and some properties of course uh, may or may not hold deer you know and you need to, of course i think the theme has been throughout with jeff is that you, know, you need to kind of take in account to all things considered so not just what's on your property what's on your neighboring property you know what your neighborhood looks like and stuff like that so at this time of year you really want to focus on holding uh, and, and dictating fall fall movement, which Jeff will uh, cover as well. And then the other part that I think we talk about a little bit or that we touch on will be, you know, bucks going nocturnal and stuff like that. Because I know that that's, you know, a lot of times getting dark deered is a, is a challenge uh, when you hit that fall time frame, whether it's, um, you know, they're changing their bedding area as they as they um, kind of change their their home ranges, you know, once they go hard horned and so forth. Um, maybe now they're a little further away from a destination food source that you've been kind of planning to use a, a, a pinch point between their bedding and their food, you know. So there's a lot of things that kind of play into that. And he'll talk a little bit about, you know, things you might be able to do to help keep you uh, from from getting dark deered quite so often. Uh, but with that, we won't delay and we'll go ahead and get to Jeff. But before we do that, uh, let's take a quick moment to hear about a few of our partners. Number one, Wicked Tree 
tree gear. Y'all be sure at this time of year, of course, you, you should be thinking about doing some pruning, um, you know, or doing some cutting in, in the timber, whether you're thinking of doing hinge cutting, you know, on some smaller trees, of course, um, or if you're thinking about, you know, starting to cut some shooting lanes or, or trim out some trees to place some stands. And this is a great time of year to do that, um, considering that the leaves are off the trees and you kind of get a really good look of what you would be looking at uh, when November or late October and early November rolls around. So if you are considering doing that, be sure to go uh, to wickedtreegear.com and pick yourself up either a handsaw or a pole saw. Uh, use the promo code TRUTH and save yourself 20% on any of the purchases that you make. Of course, you know, this time of year, you're also kind of thinking about uh, you know, your food plots and so forth. I know we covered food plots in the um, summer section and the spring spring section kind of extensively. Uh, but this time of year, you, there's always planning that you can do, you know, in very late fall, especially if you're looking for, uh, you know, a specific winter food. So late summer and early fall is a great planning time for that. And if you haven't yet selected your seed, uh, be sure to head over to techamani.com and use their product selector tool to help you kind of pick out the seed that you'll be needing for the area that you live in and for the time of the year that you want your crops to be uh, viable for the uh, deer. And if you use the promo code TRUTH there as well, you will save 20% on a Tecamani purchase. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get Jeff Sturgis on the line and let's talk some fall habitat. All right, folks, we are live and you're listening to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And I am joined for the Quattro Part 4 with Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions. And we're talking fall habitat planning this time. Jeff, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going great. Nah. Talking about fall habitat is right up my alley. We're a little ways away, but uh, that's my favorite time of the year by far. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, oh man, I got the itch already. It's all, it's too early to get the, it's too early to get the itch. I'm trying to turn my focus to turkey season. I, and I, and I skipped right over shed, I skipped right over shed hunting if you, if you couldn't tell because I'm the world's worst shed hunter. I've yet to ever find a shed. I think because I usually end up scouting while I'm shed hunting. So, I'm skipping. Right. I'm skipping right. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking too many places. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm looking at the old rubs. I'm looking at the old scrapes if they're still yeah, you know, visible. Expensive. Starting to put puzzle pieces together for next year. Um, and I know shed hunting is an important part of that, but it's just something that I can't. I can't bring myself to do. So I'm going to have to hook up with a buddy of ours and see if I can't learn from from Johnny Utah Mulligan some shed hunting because that that fool seems to get into him just about every year. I think I have to go to uh, Iowa though. I think that's the ticket. Go to Iowa to shed hunt, right? Oh, definitely. Go to Iowa, go to Missouri, you know, Nebraska, uh, Kansas, uh, some of the, where there's not as much competition for each shed. Right. Exactly. Well, speaking of, let's go ahead and dive into the, to the hunting season portion of, of this segment. We're talking fall habitat planning. So, you know, we've gone through, you know, winter, spring, summer, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work up to this point at the different times of times of years and kind of started to set the stage for, for the hunting season to a degree. And this is the time of year where we kind of try to pull it, pull it all together and hope all of our, our planning and, and, uh, and, and practices kind of, you know, help us have success during this time of year. So at this point, you know, we've made the updates, you know, we should be long completed, you know, hopefully as long as we're able to get to our property and, and the scheduling is on our, on our side. Um, you know, and, and we, at this point we should hopefully have the nice bucks on our property that we want to have on our property. So, you know, from a habitat perspective, what are you prioritizing for the fall time of the year? Well, really looking at that property, if your property is peaking in May, June, July, you're really missing the boat because, um, November, um, in the North half of the country is a time where you can attract, mold, grow, shape, protect the deer herd, and of course, hunt a deer herd. So, um, you're looking at really your your food plots peaking at that time and you're offering diversity 
Now, that being said, with the food plots, it's really important that if you have multiple food plots on your land, that you plant them in the same diversity every food plot because you want to attract individual doe herds and doe movements to each one of those food plots and have that be consistent for the entire year or the, the entire season. So, um, for example, if you have clover on one plant, brassicas or plot, brassicas on another plot, and uh, you know corn on another plot or beans, whatever it might be, then when each one of those is peaking in nutrition and attraction, you have those dominant does that move, they push other does out of the way, and really have acres of bedding area and cover that just are wasted because deer are focusing on just on one portion of your property. So very important to be consistent with your diversity that you offer in every food plot, have your entire property working like a machine going into November. And that truly is a time where there's a lot of moving pieces coming together that um, that hopefully are peaking in nutrition attraction, your hunting management and hunting pressure management is all coming together to uh, – create a really good herd and a lot of fun during the hunting season for yourself and your family. Right. So I think you mentioned something that was really interesting right there that stood out to me, which was, you know, everyone kind of attribute or thinks about the fall season as the time of year when they hunt, hunt deer. Right. And what you had just mentioned was that this is the best time or the most critical time when you really kind of shape your herd, shape movement and shape the age dynamics to a degree by protecting the deer that you want to protect and so forth which I think is a really kind of yeah. different way of, of looking at it. Like the, the fall isn't only to harvest. The fall is also the most critical part of establishing your hunting success for future years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, definitely. Um, and that's, that's the fun part of all of this. You know, this, uh, this year was the first year since I believe 1989 that I didn't harvest a buck. And hmm. it was uh, one of my best years because I, of course, got with with some vacant tags, not being punched, and I, right. then I really got to hunt a lot this year, uh, more than normal, and it was pretty awesome. I, I got to sit a lot more than I have since 2006 was the last time. And for that, I got to see a lot of bucks, and I got to see a lot of really nice bucks, pass them up, and advance them to the next age class. Three, four-year-olds, uh, a lot of three-year-olds, two-year-olds. And, and so that happens during the fall. So, yeah, I didn't shoot a buck. I mean, it felt a little weird. But at the same time, um, boy, what a fun season. I got a lot of good video, um, got to watch a lot of deer. And, of course, I have a lot of deer that will be around for next year that are going to be some giants on multiple lands. So very exciting. And, you know, really the fall, even on uh, controlling your herd numbers, um, you know, you do that during November, during October, during December. That's when you control your herd numbers through doe harvest if you need to. Um, You don't always have to. But... Um, people, I don't think hunters in general don't give themselves enough credit for the influence that they can have, even on a small property for either increasing or decreasing the herd numbers, um, of course, within the law, but at the same time, the, the, um, the wildlife uh, resource folks, the DNR, they give us some great guidelines to go from in most states. And, you know, of course you have no one to blame but yourself if you shoot too many deer, Mm -hmm. but, um, a great time. We have some great tools to raise or lower the deer populations, even on small properties of 40 acres plus. Right. And so seeing, you know, that's awesome. Well, I don't, hold on, <laughs> let me rephrase it. It's not awesome that you have a, have tags remaining. I, it, but the, it's awesome that you were able to kind of have that, have that experience and get that perspective of, you know, being able just to watch movement for a season. Cause that's, I mean, that's, that's invaluable because I think one of the things I missed out on this year, and this was the first time I think in almost for, for forever that's happened for me was tagging out in early October. 
And I feel mm-hmm. like what you just kind of described, it's like, I feel like I kind of missed something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because all well, of a sudden yeah. life, life priorities start to get in the way. And the weekends I would typically, or days I would typically, typically go hunt, you know, something else, else might creep up and it's like, well, I do have a deer in the freezer. So it's like, I'm not going to go hunt, hunt does today. Cause <laughs> you know, I, I can't really tell the wife no, cause I already went hunting and I got one. And you know, so that it becomes part of, part of that. So I didn't get out nearly as much as I, as I typically would. And that's, you know, I think that that's a, uh, it's, there's a silver lining to it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting. I went through a range of uh, emotions, as you can imagine, during the hunting season. I was, you know, of course, you're really excited for it, and I started passing up bucks. I think there was uh, two days where I passed up uh, ten bucks or more uh, by two wow. o'clock in the afternoon. You know, hunting in the morning and just got to see some of the biggest bucks on the property, just not the biggest bucks, and some of the ones just the few handful that I was after out of thirty five, forty. Um, even just on one property. And so it was, it was fun. Um, I went through some little bit of heartache and, right. and, uh, it seemed depressing there, but at some point I kind of looked at it like, you know what, I'm just not going to get a buck this year. <laughs> it just <laughs> felt like, uh, it wasn't going to happen. And I, and I really was able to just be comfortable with that and sit back and enjoy it. There were so many times where I almost dove for my camera cause I had a good buck coming that I knew I wasn't going to shoot, but mm-hmm. I wanted to get some really good footage of it. And right. so we made a lot of hunting season videos, um, you know, the post rut videos, second dairy rut videos, cruising rut videos, and, and late season hunting and late season food source hunting, late season cover. And I hunted all the way till January 7th in Wisconsin, which was the very last day. I sat all the way till dark, you know, that day. And, uh, and it, it was a little bit different kind of season, but man, I enjoyed every aspect of that I could of actually not shooting a, a deer. Nice. Yeah. Or not shooting buck. Nice. So, you know, obviously, you know, where you're hunting, you know, these particular places, you know, it's, there's, uh, you're consistently, you know, attracting and holding the fall movement, especially if you're seeing 10, 10 bucks, you know, before two, two o'clock in the afternoon on a property, like that's, 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 that's cooking with gas, you know? So how, how do you consistently attract and hold, hold fall movement? What's the key to kind of making sure that that's happening for you whenever hunting season arrives? Clint, that's probably one of the most important questions that, um, that you could probably ask as it relates to not only hunting, but herd management and, and really setting that up. And so the basis of every property that I look at um, involves setting up an afternoon food source movement. And what that means is there are very few properties in October, let alone when you get into November and then certainly in December, that actually attract uh, daylight movement and daylight deer herds um, that when I mean, you think about it, the cover options are severely shrinking. Hunting pressure is rampant, especially in our high under pressure states. And the number of food sources are drastically depleted. If people are relying on, if hunters are relying on ag fields, they're gone, plowed, harvested, picked. And, and there's really not much left for deer out there. And so the very few properties that have great food and cover, a high percentage of them are over, are over pressured and hunter pressured. So if, the, the main thing that I look at on my own properties, I've lived by this for many years, for decades, and then the properties that I manage and the clients that I work with is setting that afternoon movement up. And it might be that those bedding areas that you're drawing deer from or even on your neighbors, but you're trying to focus those deer for that afternoon feeding slot. Again, deer feed five times in a 24-hour period. That's twice during the daytime, uh, d- uh, daylight in their bedding areas. That's once in the afternoon, approximately an hour before dark, and that's twice during the the darkness hours or, or nighttime hours. And so what you're looking at doing is having enough browse or enough browse in your neighbor's properties where deer are bedded, 
and then you have safe movement for those deer all season long to consistent food sources that offer diversity and and enough of a variety within those food sources that you can keep the attention of the deer herd from before the season, about a month, all the way to the end of the season. Once you establish that afternoon movement, think of this, the deer love variety and diversity, so they hit your food sources and then you want them to leave. You don't want them to hang around and hit your food sources after dark. What I find is you have two types of properties. You have properties that attract deer after dark and they hit they hit your food sources twice. And then you have the properties that I like to look at and the ones that I have where the deer are hitting your food sources in the afternoon and then they're leaving that land by dark and going over to your neighbors to feed. So in that way, your food sources last a lot longer. Um, you're controlling the afternoon movement, meaning you're getting a good look at all those deer whether you're going and hunting the backside of bedding areas in the morning or between bedding areas, or you're hunting between bedding and food in the afternoon, evening, or you're even hunting near food. But it's important to not spook out those movements, to maintain them all hunting season long. And if you work hard at building your habitat to do just that, and you're adding those sweeteners or, or strengthening movements of mock scrapes, water holes, maybe minerals of legal during the summertime, uh, cuttings, travel corridors, creating bedding areas, uh, habitat playing switchgrass, uh, screening to act for your access, you're working on your hunter access, then you can maintain those movements, that afternoon food source movement, and that's the most important thing you can do on your properties. And uh, and you let, if you can do that, start that before the hunting season and let it go for the entire hunting season, I'm telling you, you'll get to experience something that probably less than 1% of 1% of all hunters get to experience on their lands, and that's the daytime property. And that can happen on 40 acres or less in an entire neighborhood. So it doesn't take many acres at all. And uh, I invite people to look at my YouTube and see some of our drone footage, even recent, where you can see all the deer trails coming into our food plots in the, in the old snow and how all those deer trails exit lower right and go out into the ag fields off our food plots. They do that every single day. We're more likely to see deer an hour before dark than we are right at dark. That's interesting. So let me, let me ask you a quick question. And I know that this is probably overgeneralizing, you know, it's, and I'm sure it's more specific to each, you know, individual property, but is there, sure. is there any like one or two things that you can do to, to set that movement up to where your to where your, your food destination is not the final destination? Is there anything that you can put in place to kind of make sure that it's, that it doesn't become the, the permanent nighttime feeding ground? Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard to do because if you're, say in a wilderness setting or a heavily wooded setting, and I'm thinking some of the hills of Pennsylvania that I've hunted in, I hunted out in the public land there for 17 years out there in, in the Allegheny Forest, National Forest out there. And so in those type of areas, if you have a food plot, that's it. You know, right. that's it for the area as far as high quality food. So you can expect that to be depleted fairly quickly. But when you get into more uh, suburban areas, ag areas, there's always some other type of food source. And so what I see hunters do a lot of times is so I'm surrounded by corn, beans, and hay. Last thing I want to have on my food plots is corn, beans, or hay. And the reason is because I want something different. I want that diversity and variety that the deer really crave and focus on. And then they want something else after dark. So if, think about it. They want that safe, um, diverse food that's something different than I'm offering in the afternoon feeding. They go out in those nighttime ag fields. They can it's a social, safe area. They bet out in the fence rows, out in the ag fields. They can hit a different type of food source, and then they're coming back for a couple feedings during the daytime in their bedding areas, and then again hitting my my food source at something different than 
there is out in the ag fields. Now, I'm not saying that there's that you should never have corn or beans. Um, I look at a food source pyramid during the fall as you have that base of greens, and then you have corn, and then lastly you have beans. And so, you know, you could really have an ultimate combination if you have all three. But again, there's some complexities with how many deer you have during the summertime, creating a, um, a doe factory. Right. And really, your resources of planting and size. You know, I only have two and three quarters, three acres to work with on each, on each uh, property. And so, if I planted beans, for example, they wouldn't even make it to uh, to probably um, uh, September, let alone October, November, or December. Right. And if I if I were going to generalize it for me, and just let me know if I'm doing a fair job of kind of synthesizing this, it's like I would yeah, look, sure. looking for diversity, and also looking for it to be timely right so i want to make sure that it's it's kind of fall focused for lack of a better way to put it and it's it's diverse in terms of my neighborhood and in terms of what you've mentioned in a previous uh mini series that it's diverse from the uh or i'm sorry not not diverse but it's supplementing what they're already able to get or the um in terms of magnitude of what they're able to get around you in terms of natural browse right so there's that there's that kind of perspective as well cool um so, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this this next question. What type of, you know, you mentioned it just a, a second ago when you talked about, you know, bucks going nocturnal just a few minutes ago, you mentioned it, if they're coming to a source sure. after dark. You know, so what type of strategies can you put in place to keep bucks from going nocturnal during the, the hunting season? Because that's, that's obviously the death nail for a hunter, right? It's like I've, we've all hunted properties where it's like it had really good potential. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, it was like someone shut the water faucet off. The, all the bucks went nocturnal and it was, you know, you played hell trying to hunt it for the rest of the year. So what types of things can you put into place to kind of keep that from happening? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. One of the things I think that um, a person needs to wrap their head around is that, um, you know, a nocturnal buck is truly a myth. They're feeding five times a day, just like the doe herd. And, but they are very reclusive and they are, are much more um, wary of hunting pressure than the doe family groups. Doe family groups, you can kick around a little bit. Um, they are very reluctant to re- leave their home ranges where bucks will leave in a second. And the older they get, the more reclusive they become. And and simply, if you're not getting bucks till 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, 4 o'clock in the morning, those bucks, probably you're not going to get a lot of pictures of them unless you have a major food source they're hitting every single night. But they're most likely coming from a mile away or two miles away, and it just takes them that long to get there. So it's not like they're sitting back there 200 yards away. So the first thing to do is take a good, hard look at your hunting pressure and how much pressure you're putting on the land and really 
The second thing is, do you actually have fall habitat and fall food where you're controlling that afternoon food source? So if you're controlling that afternoon food source movement where you have a substantial amount of deer hitting your plots about an hour before dark every day, then you're going you're gonna to hit that optimum um, daylight uh, mature buck ratio. And I look at it like a really a good figure to look at and a good guide is you should get one daylight picture for every one nocturnal picture of mature bucks. If you're controlling that afternoon food source movement, you're hanging your cameras so that I like to get them about six feet off the ground. Um, I'm using blackout cameras, the extra cameras. I'm hiding the profiles, hiding the background. So I'm really, you know, being non-invasive. I'm making sure the deer aren't looking at my cameras. And if they, if any deer are looking at your cameras and you just switch them, I look at a rate of about 1%. So really only 1% of the deer that walk by a camera should really look at it. And so I'm looking at how the cameras are hung, if the deer are actually looking at them, and then really looking at my hunting pressure and, and take a good, honest look, you know, are the deer not going nocturnal after opening day and how much pressure do you put on? Um, are they picking back up after you haven't been there for two weeks? So you can learn a lot about your own hunting pressure, but then, uh, you know, are your food sources and your, your, uh, cover sources really fall related and, uh, at the optimum peaking time of November that they should be. Right. And let me, let me ask this, this question here. Cause, and, and tell me if this is just maybe the wrong time of year to bring it up. Cause it, it might be a different part of the, part of the, the, you know, seasons. But, uh, you know, one of the things I've read in, in one of your books is, is where you talk about depth of cover. Does this like, does the whole knock and I agree that the nocturnal thing is a myth. They're, they're, they're feeding exactly as you say, it's just, they may be taking in them longer to get from bedding to your food source, whatever the case is. Um, but does depth of cover play into that at all? If you have the correct type of depth of cover, then you're making sure that they're going to be bedding near enough to a food source that you can start to ensure you're going to get daylight movement and start. Is that a critical piece of kind of controlling that, that, that fall movement and holding them in the fall? Yes. Yeah. That's, I'm really glad you brought that up. And what depth of cover is, is let's say you have a 40 acre parcel, you put five acre food plot right in the middle of that 40 acre parcel. You can't go 165 yards in any direction without going off the parcel. So your depth is 165 out of basically 165 yards out of 440. Now, if you take a 20-acre parcel that's a quarter mile deep, just like that 40, so you're cutting that 40 in half lengthwise, you put a five-acre food plot in the front of that 20-acre parcel, you now still have 330 yards of depth on that 20-acre parcel from that food plot. So in that depth, you can house does, which does will bed up close to the food source. You're not going to have mature bucks bedding between the, the food family groups. They're going to bed behind the doe family groups. And so you truly have on that 20-acre parcel a better opportunity to actually hold and attract mature bucks because you have a true depth of cover of 330 yards, which is double what you would have on the 40-acre parcel with that 5-acre food plot in the middle of the 40-acre parcel. And so it really, you have to have that depth, but then you have to have layers of bedding cover and opportunity. And so let's say that food plot does not have screening against the woods to where deer can look back at that food plot from a hundred yards in the woods, then they're not going to feel comfortable until they're bedding 125 yards back from that food plot. Now take screening cover and thick cover. It could be in the form of hinge cutting, switchgrass. Um, I had clients even construct a berm around a woodlot. Mm-hmm. where those deer actually feel comfortable bedding within 20, 30 yards, and that would be does, doe family groups within 20, 30 yards of that food source, then that, that area that's 100 yards back, that bedding area where the does were previously bedding, you can start to layer more does and then younger bucks and then bucks. So 
you take a buck that might have been pushed back 400 yards in the ag area because that's where he finally found his own space away from the does and small bucks, and you could actually sandwich those deer into a lot more compact movement by using your depth, but not only using your depth and creating depth, but also working on the habitat improvement so you can actually layer bedding in a lot more compact system between that edge of that food source and then ultimately the backside of that movement, which is where the mature bucks are. That actually sets up an entire system of hunting, too, where you actually have backside bedding that you can hunt in the morning, wait for those bucks to come back to you, and then side movement during the day and evening hours and closer to the food source and the afternoon um, as deer are forming a more logical pattern of movement that you can predictably uh, take advantage of, especially in that afternoon food source movement. Yeah, and as you were talking, I was literally furiously jotting notes and reminding myself to go back and read that because you're just kind of talking about exactly the scenario that I have at this new property where I'm going to get ready to start putting some food plots in this year. And that was kind of what brought it up because I've been thinking about it, where I'm going to place these things. And it's not a huge property, as you mentioned, it's about 60 acres. So we do have a little bit of a little bit of room. But I want to try to get to exactly what you're talking about. I was talking to my dad about, you know, we need to do some, we talked a little bit about switchgrass and we talked a little bit about doing some, maybe some edge feathering around where we want to put the food plots to start to create that cover immediately as soon as you get off the plot. And you can also use it to build a smarter mousetrap to kind of give them funnels that they're going to have to use to get in and out. Um, You know, so things things like that, it's, you know, I'm sitting here jotting notes to remind myself to, to remember these things as we start to think about implementing some, some, some uh, plot plans. But, you know, is there, um, you know, before we jumped on this call, you know, you and I were talking a little bit, you know, reminiscing about the year past and some, you know, and I was talking a little bit about the deer that I have on this property that I'm really looking forward to in the fall. And uh, we were talking a little bit about historical patterns. So is there anything that you can do, you know, from a habitat perspective to create or to encourage, you know, bucks to continue to use certain historical patterns? Well, one thing, when you when you create highly defined lines of movement, meaning from point A to point B, which would be bedding to feeding or bedding to bedding, and you strengthen those movements with travel corridors, strengthening the bedding areas, and really you want those areas to really stick out. So say, for example, if you take a 40 acres and just cut the whole 40 or cut it as a select cut or do the same across, you have no definition of movement because it's all the same. So I'm looking at half acre to one acre bedding areas, travel corridors that connect those bedding areas. You're putting timber on the ground, creating hinge cuts, creating browse lines, and then strengthening those movements with water holes, if appropriate, mock scrapes, mineral stations in the summertime to really almost train the deer to use those movements on a consistent basis. Then what I find is, and it's no different than if you're, you're finding consistent movement across a bench, over a saddle, down a point within topographical feature properties, um, along a, a, a wood line or a cut line, along a swamp line or a, a water line, a waterway line or cro- creek crossing. You know, you'll find deer use that year after year. Well, if you're creating habitat improvements, you're doing the same thing. So you're trying to set the table so that your property works the system. The deer are focusing here in the afternoon on the food sources. They're bedding in these locations. They're moving this way to get there. So that when you have bucks that are taken there, and so we've shot two years ago, we shot three bucks on the same movement, and each one was not there before the other one as far as the second and the third ones. And I believe that uh, we have enough deer focus and bucks in the area that when one's taken out, a lot of times another one follows that, that, that place and that pattern. So when they do come into that pattern, doesn't matter if it's five years from now, three years from now, you know, really all you need to know is kind of like, uh, Clint, we were talking about like, you know, you know, a buck's there, um, you know, he made it through the season. 
you use the camera data from last year to pattern them. He's falling in the patterns of other bucks you've harvested or other bucks you've observed, maybe in a, even his own patterns for sure. And then because you have consistent habitat movement, you're keeping the food source the same, so you're not relying on the whims of the farmer, or the na- you know the local neighbors or whatever they might be. You're actually defining that daytime movement. Then you know that the following year, if you know that buck's alive during the summertime, you knew he was alive during February, then pretty much you could go in there at the end of October, early November, and sure enough, he's going to follow that pattern. And it seems like almost like a needle in a haystack, but even with just a handful of pictures from the year before, if you have defined habitat movements, you could go into a stand on a cold morning in early November and, you know, lo and behold, he walks right by your stand. It's it's really not as, as vast of a needle in a haystack scenario as, as a lot of people think. In fact, you know, a lot of times, a lot of my buck harvests have come where bucks are living on neighboring properties. I call them non-core bucks. I've had a handful of pictures over two to three years. They've told me they're going to be there during the peak rut, which is November 5th or 10th in, in Wisconsin, maybe November 3rd. Um, I'll go in there on a cold front into a particular stand. I don't even know the buck's there yet. I just know he survived. And uh, and he comes right in front of you, you know, the buck that you're after on that stand location. It's just because you've defined things to know when they come into the property, they fall within those consistent patterns that you can rely on. Right. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned the one buck's tell will be another buck's tell as well. <laughs> and I didn't mean to make yeah. that rhyme, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that's a good way to put it <laughs> you know it's a, got, got a little dr seuss on everyone there um you know it's interesting yeah. because you do see you know it's the whole you know the i guess the saying that a buck bet if it's good enough for this buck that you just killed another buck will be sure to yes. to, to to come in and take that spot over because there's a reason why they were betting there in the first place it's because they're safe they have good entrance they can smell behind them they can see in front of them, whatever the case is it's set up right so another buck will find it um yeah and and that's the beauty of private land yeah. you know i hunt uh southern ohio public land every year and that's the the part that's tough down there is that the clear cuts define how the deer move and so you can have a great location one year that deer were focusing on some you know medium age uh, clear cuts of two to five years old three to five years old and all of a sudden a mile away there's a fresh batch of clear cuts over 100 120 acres and then and then for sure those deer are moving and and uh and so you're you're constantly have to be on your toes where on private land you can just define that movement keep it the same every single year you can improve upon it move your stands as needed and uh, and it's really a lot more definitive. And uh, as long as you keep the hunting pressure out of the equation and and manage that, then uh, you can count on that deer movement every single year. Absolutely. Well, to wrap this thing up, man, this is the four, the number four of number four. So to end this one, what are the uh, most important features to have for your fall habitat? Well, one of the one of the things to really guard is, you know, the the greater your, the, the attraction level of your habitat improvements, both being cover and food, maybe water holes, mock trapes, whatever it might be in the fall, the more you have to manage that attraction, meaning that you can invite every deer in the neighborhood, and if you don't manage your hunting pressure well, then you'll repel every deer in the neighborhood. So often the properties that are improved the most have the highest risk of actually repelling deer and making their property nocturnal because they're just educating a huge percentage of the deer in the neighborhood. Now, on the flip side, if you can make your property very defined and highly attractive and really focus on that afternoon food source movement, then not only can you mold, shape, attract, protect, and advance the age class, improve your sex ratios, your buck age structure, but you can simply have a great hunt. 
and so, um, and not to mention a lot of uh, daytime photos with your trail cameras. So you're really looking at the entire picture of making your property attractive, but not so attractive that you can't step foot on it without bumping deer, and then managing that level of attraction so that every day you have a food focus of those deer that you can capitalize on and keep it consistent all season long so that you can, whether you're into the deer management, whether you're into hunting, mature buck harvest, um, or all of it like I am, then uh, you really have an opportunity to improve your hunt and your herd all season long. Nice. Well, hey, man, I want to say thank you first and foremost for um, doing this series. Uh, it's, it's been extremely informational for me. I've taken a lot of stuff from it. I have a... Uh, a notebook full of notes here as we, as you were talking, I just continued to jot notes. I, I'm hoping everyone out there finds it informational as well. I appreciate you coming on. I also appreciate you uh, being able to tolerate me for four consecutive episodes. So there's a, there's a badge oh. to be one, a badge to be one for that. <laughs> oh no, certainly Clint. I, I always, always love being on and the time flies by. So actually I'm, I'm still driving <laughs> four episodes <laughs> later. So right. um, we, uh, I'm getting close to my motel, but boy, this drive went by quick, this little section in Michigan and going up to Big Rapids, Michigan. Nice. Awesome. Well, I'm glad I could help pass the time. And uh, I'm I'm sure everyone out there listening is going to be super stoked to get all this information. Safe travels on the rest of your way. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thank you very much, Clint. Uh, Always a pleasure. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. And it is, in fact, a wrap for this DIY Habitat mini series with Jeff, Jeff Sturgis. Just want to thank him for being part of this. Uh, great timing to put this out and kind of wrap up all four segments for every season of your Habitat update you know, seasons. Um, kind of has me pumped up and ready to kind of go do some do some work on one of the farms to get ready for hunting season because, you know, a couple turnarounds here and it won't be too far off. And before you know it, we'll be wondering where the time has gone and be kind of getting ready to get back into the tree stand soon. So with that, you know, want to make sure we thank Jeff for, for taking part in all of this. Also, uh, make sure to follow Jeff and Whitetail Habitat Solutions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, want to thank all of you for joining us and listening to the podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating if you are digging the podcast. And while you're there, subscribe for the podcast. That way, we would make sure to get you every episode uh, delivered directly to your mobile devices. And before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Tekamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.